Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown, and thanks for coming along for the ride. This time we talk to Jason Quaid from Abbey Bike Tools, and we hear the story about how they went from unknown to being in the box of most professional mechanics. Then we hear a story from the Cyclist in a Strange Land blog about their first time in Copenhagen. And finally, Greg Hahn shares his story about wheeling and dealing with Eddie Merckx. You have a lot of podcasts to choose from, so I really appreciate you coming for the ride. Thanks, Taryn. Let's roll out. So the goal of this podcast is to bring bicycle loving people together. And sometimes if you get into a conversation and you're just missing a little tiny piece of information, you don't understand the story. Well, I'm about to throw you all the information you need so that you can understand the story that you're about to hear. Jason Quaid is the guy who started Abbey Bike Tools which is just sprung on the scene out of nowhere. I mean, there have been tool companies that have been around for a hundred years and Abbey Bike Tools, boom, it's there. So how do you start a brand new manufacturing company in the United States that makes tools out of nowhere? Well, you invent a tool that nobody has thought of before. This is the story of the tool that Abbey Bike Tools invented. If you're not a mechanic, don't worry. This story is going to seem a little bit like Shark Tank, a little bit like an inventor's document. But to put it simply, he invented a tool that allows you to tighten the ring that holds the gears onto the back wheel without having to take another part apart. So you can quickly take the gears off of the back wheel and put them onto the back wheel a lot faster. So for you, you might never have those gears come loose. But for somebody who's a mechanic for the Tour de France, if that ever happens once, you want to make sure never to let that happen again on your watch. So you need to check those. But to check them all on 20 bikes, you have to take out all the skewers, remove the back wheel, and do it that way. Well, with this tool, you can leave the skewers in and check for tightness. So this is the story of how Abbey Bike Tools started. And even though he's like a prodigy of tooling and modern manufacturing, he's wicked down to earth and fun. We played a game about naming different bike tool brands to start off with. I threw him some questions about working on dog bikes that you'd find on the side of the road and junkyard scrap bikes. And he was able to propose some solutions for that as well. So a real nice guy. Listen to his story about how he started to make bike tools. Yeah, I'm Jason from Abbey Bike Tools, and uh, we make precision quality professional tooling for the bike industry. So bikes have been around for hundreds of years. Yep. You had to fix them for hundreds of years. So, I mean, we could go back and forth. Let's let's do a little name game. Let's play a game. Yeah. So I'll go back and forth. I'll take an easy one, like Park. Yeah. What's another one? Uh, Hosan. Okay, that's a good one. That's my favorite lock ring tool. LD. Seekless. VAR. Unior. Bicycle Research. Efficient Mellow Tools. X-Axis. So we could keep going for a while. I think I would strike out first. I'm pretty sure you would. I'm pretty sure I would too. (laughs) You know, there's all these bike tools that are out there, and then how long ago did Abby start? So we, we, I, made the first prototype kind of crombie tools, our signature tool, and the tool that started it all six years ago this month in my garage. Um, so it was definitely a, I come from a manufacturing uh, industrial fabrication and welding background. So everything from nuclear grade pressure vessels to certified airplane parts. And so when I moved to Bend, Oregon, where we still live and where our off facility is, got sucked back into the bike industry and kind of got pulled away from that. And a friend of mine, Jeff Crombie, who I met at USA Cycling's Bill Woodall Race Mechanics Clinic, probably about eight years ago, he used to be an airframe and power plant mechanic, an AMP, that worked on helicopters, and I spent a brief time in the aviation industry as well, and so we kind of had that in common. Uh, we always kept in touch, and Jeff was super paranoid about cassette lock rings coming loose got his first kind of big job with a Canadian pro-continental road team called Spider Tech and just he wanted to check cassette lock rings every day 
where I was at. We all have the, we all have little things like that. Yeah. It's like our thing that we got burned on once. And exactly. Then we do that for the rest and, of our life. And so he had seen like one of them rattle loose ever. And so he's like, I, you know, it's it's very common practice for race mechanics to check every bolt on the bike after every day of racing. And you'd be surprised how often they loosen up. These guys are like really cranking and wrenching on handlebars. They're, you know, they're stretching those stem bolts and they loosen up just a little bit. So Jeff wanted to check that as part of his regular routine. Well, to remove the cassette skewer from, or the, the rear wheel skewer from the wheel just to check that bolt wasn't like, wasn't a good use of time. And so he literally called me up from Calgary in Canada and was asking he's like do you can you go out to the garage for a minute he's like do you have a, a shimano quick release nut and, and one of their hg tools and i was like yeah he's like well does your nut fit inside your tool and i'm like yeah and he's literally he's like drill a hole in that and weld a handle to it send it to me let me know how much you want So a day or two later, I went to a friend's machine shop and I bored a hole for somebody else's lockering tool and I welded a piece of flat bar steel handle to it and, and I mailed it to Canada. And Jeff's like, hey, this is perfect. This is exactly what I needed. And before the, it had actually arrived at Jeff's place, I, I ordered like 20 more lockering tools and made like 20 of those in the same manner. Chucked them in a lathe, drilled a big old hole through them, welded a plate steel handle, handle found like some cheap DIY um, black oxide kit, coated these things in my garage, and it's like those were the first Crombie tools. Um, we named the tool after Jeff, so. Then I started getting some phone calls from like random people. Um, I'd given most of those, almost all of those tools away to uh, race mechanic friends of mine, which is a very small knit uh, and close knit group of people. And I started getting phone calls from like random guys that I'd never heard of. And they're like, are you that guy that makes that thing that I'm like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm that guy. <laughs> um, so yeah, and after that, it just kind of grew and we kind of made the, the decision to make ends, um, the spline ends for Shimano and Campagnolo lockering patterns specifically for us. So we went to um, a local CNC shop that runs these super fancy uh, citizen Swiss turning centers and they made the ends just for us and we got like some bar stock that was like leftover was remnants from another job that they were running and we cut them all down to the same length and we you know used that for our first handle material and, and we made like the first hundred crombie tools and went through the the pit at the crit at the cascade cycling classic which is our local kind of national road calendar event and i sold one to every mechanic that had money in their pocket Like, you sold one me yesterday. Oh, there you go. Like, wow. You didn't have one already? I, I've never seen one in person before. Oh, buddy. Yeah. And hiding under rocks. Um, I saw them online. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was kind of that group of people really adopted us super fast because we, we put a tool in their hand that saved them an hour a day. You think of a team mechanic is going to swap cassettes from a mountain stage to a flat stage during a stage race. They've got eight riders on the team. They're going to do eight race bikes. They're going to do eight spare bikes. And they're going to do probably four to eight rear wheels. They're all going to change cassettes on. Um, if you go to a Grand Tour or a big UCI HC race where you're each, each team gets two cars in the caravan, now you have eight more spare bikes to do. So it, it really is a lot of work. So those guys just jumped on us. 11 and a half months later after we sold those first tools, one of our customers worked for a team that wanted to Tour de France. So that was kind of like from very early on, those guys loved us. That's how you became a legend so quickly. Apparently. Um, you know, when, when time is money and results pay the bills, like you, it doesn't matter who your sponsor is. It's like there are tools that are clear cut away better than anything else on the market. And so those guys were pretty quick to pull out their credit card or open their wallet and, and buy tools for like, not only for them, but for their entire squad. going down to like tour of California in years past and walking around and selling tools to all the team mechanics. And it's like, I, I kind of, sometimes I just get mugged. It's like the guys just swarm around me cause they they're like, Oh, you're actually here. Like you're that guy. And, um, 
the interesting thing about that is that we don't sponsor anybody in pro, any teams in pro racing. And in fact, a lot of our competitors sponsor those people, but they'll still buy our stuff, um, which is kind of a, it makes us feel really good about it. Um, and it's kind of that validation of like, hey, here are the world's best mechanics and they're they're buying our tools. We probably sell more tools into pro racing across all disciplines than everybody else put together. But yeah, it's kind of, to kind of back up a little bit, after we went through and, and sold that first batch of tools, we sent like the last two to a couple of journalists who just had great glowing reviews about all of the stuff. Uh, a couple of them we had pull quotes on our expo backdrop. Nick Legan, who was one of my favorite tech editors at the time, called it a, an heirloom quality tool. And it was something that's like, here's a guy whose writing and, and perspective I really appreciated and enjoyed. I and mean, he's like, he's saying this about something that I made, which was pretty, pretty flattering and, and humbling. You know, and so all these people started emailing us and they're like, well, what else do you make? I'm like, well, I, I don't know. Like, I haven't gotten that far. I make this Hold thing. On. I'll check. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what do you, what do you want to see? Um, what else do you want, want us to make? And so we kind of started asking the questions and then we picked some low-hanging fruit. And it's like, well, a chain whip goes really well with this, this signature tool. So we made one of those and, and we made a, a truing stand adapter and then we made a bottom bracket socket for the kind of odd Shimano sizes. And, and what does your truing stand adapter do? Uh, so it adapts through like modern through axle wheels for mountain and like all the disc road stuff to a, um, to a normal truing stand. So it kind of gets around some of that compatibility. But yeah, um, and so then it just grew from there. So that was five and a half years ago, like we sold the first batches of tools. And then it just, we were all making all of this stuff pretty much by myself in my garage for about the first year and a half, two years. And then we, we moved to our first shop and, and added some more machine tools and stuff and, you know, outgrew that. And then this past November, we moved into a second space to kind of double our uh, double our overall footprint and add some more machinery to kind of bring a little bit more manufacturing in-house. But um, it's been a pretty crazy ride for sure. So like we all have our favorite tools. You kind of saw this niche in the mechanics toolbox and you said this doesn't exist because somebody came to you and said build that up. That to me is different than so many other brands which just try and say, oh, you know what? I'm gonna make a, a nicer this than the other guy. And you're really saying, here's something that didn't exist before we did it. So that's the coolest part about your story is how you literally found something missing and then you put it in there. Yeah, it was, um, in some ways, I'm like, how did this, you know, we the, the HG lock rings blind for, I think I think Shimano was the first company to, to or was the company that kind of developed that pattern, and then everybody else, um, SRAM, Sunrace, Saks, everybody kind of just piggybacked onto that. It was a, it was a pretty well-engineered tool interface, but it's like, we've been using that since the mid-80s, and it's like, why did this make it 30 years before somebody put a, a solution like this to market? Like, it was really kind of you know it's like you, you guys have people whose entire job is R&D like why don't you why did this take so long to happen um, and then since then since we put it to market we've seen some some pretty blatant knockoffs which you know was not the most flattering thing in the world in spite of what the uh, the normal saying about that imitation doesn't flatter me and it doesn't put food on my table um, so yeah All right, so you've made tools mm -hmm. for some of the most elite racers in the world, if not the most elite racers in the world. Race mechanics, yeah. Which would also put it at the universe level because they're the only cyclists we know about. So you, the top of the top of the top. So I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'm going to go back down to the Craigslist level. Yep. My guys. Okay. We got some tools we need. Yep. Can I throw them at you? Shark Tank style. <laughs> All right, stuck seat post. Ooh. When but, you get a ratty bike and you got that stuck seat post. What's the tool that I use to get the, it out? What's the tool? Because I keep imagining a tool to be like some type of like the, the, the thing you use to take the fixed cups out of the, the headset, but it's got hooks on the bottom. And like then some type of thing hammer, that you can yeah. whack or a slide hammer that you can do. Um, being the machinist fabricator guy in Bend, Oregon, like 
once in a while the other bike shops in town will call me to like hey we've got something that's really seized and it needs a, a machinist like or somebody with machine tools and, and not a bike mechanic um, I just ream them out with an adjustable reamer and just make the seat post disappear um, you're a good friend to have close by I, yeah um, but yeah it's there's a lot of things that can work to get stuck seat posts out and everybody's got their tips and tricks of using ammonia or coca-cola or the hacksaw tricks or something like you described or like crazy special pullers but it's like i've seen every one of those things fail it's like sometimes yeah. they work sometimes they don't by a time by the time a bike like that winds up in in front of me somebody's already tried that stuff and i just ream them out and it's like it's not the fastest way to do it but to date i've never had one not work so yeah just an, a tapered adjustable reamer and you take cut the seat post off quarter inch above the end of the seat tube and you know adjust the set the reamer up so that it's just taken uh you know maybe a tenth of a millimeter in a pass do a pass make it a little bigger do another pass and you do 10 or 12 of those and next thing you know like the seat post is as thick as a sheet of paper and it they pretty much just will snag and will come out i so gotta get my craigslist friends who yeah. are working on 20 dollar bikes to Get to buy like with a to, uh, just buy like a seventy dollar adjustable reamer and okay. you know it's not okay. you can do it manually with a big T handle. All right, I'm so, good with that. Yeah. All right, the other big one. Get Gary Fisher at home. Okay. It's got a bottom bracket. Mm-hmm. Won't budge. Won't budge at all. What type of bottom bracket is it? It's uh, just a, it's a Shimano. Like square taper, Isis. Yeah, square taper. Square taper. And it's got that thing, and it's it's stripped, but there's yeah. wiggle room and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I think that that's one of your quality tools there is that, you know, when when you were doing the sales pitch to the people walking around and talking about what makes your tools different, you know, you were talking about the tolerances. And if you have a five millimeter uh, Allen head from eight different companies and you put them into hex head screw you're gonna have different amounts of wiggle from every single company except for the ones whose tolerances are spot-on and then you have to worry also about the screw company and whether their tolerances were spot-on yeah it's definitely a good point like as, as tool makers um, or for like hand tools and the applications we only get to control half of the situation you know and we can try to reach out to the, the component manufacturers that are making suspension parts or bottom brackets or whatever they are and get sometimes they're more than happy to pass over engineering drawings that have tolerances and stuff and and other times um, they're like nope that stuff stays in our our control and unless we're going to contract you to make these parts which they're not you know you don't need that information but yeah bottom bracket tool. i mean the first thing with bottom bracket tools is like don't get in that situation in the first place like if it's it's not just going to spin itself out you know with under normal use with like a 3 8 breaker bar or a ratchet or something like bolt it in so to make sure that the the tool stays engaged or the trick that i really like is is to like hug the bike almost so if you put your thigh against the back of the, the ratchet and kind of grab the the down tube and the chain stay um, you can really make sure that that tool stays engaged we don't do kind of cartridge bottom bracket tools um, at this point but um, yeah if it is stripped out like I've had a couple of them where um, you know if you can get the like one side out non-drive or drive side you know a lot of the times you can pound the kind of the rest of the cartridge bottom bracket out of the cup um, you know, through just brute force. Um, I've got a, a box that's uh, made out of like heavy duty plywood and whatnot. And it's got a, like a three inch hole in it that you can use to pick it up and carry it. Kind of just, it's a general like shop step stool, like widget. It's, we use it all the time, but you can take like the frame and set it on its side. And then you've got, you can put the bottom bracket through the hole in the box and pretty much just start wailing on it. Um, at that point, it's kind of all bets are off. Um, and then once the spindle is out, you can take like a just a normal hacksaw or a little reciprocating saw and, and and section the bottom bracket itself like cut it in thirds you know and then just take a punch and pop one of the thirds out and then uh yeah pretty much get it out from there but there's all kinds of like when you're familiar with metalworking tools like the comfort level of doing things like that um is is totally my wheelhouse is it something that joe public your craigslist guy wants to do in his garage maybe maybe not um 
So I just, I, just I, I, I love that you, you answered that question because I have three curveball. You yeah. just met me like an hour ago, and uh, I, I those are things I that mean, I've you're done. Making, like, you're making tools for like some of this, you know the stuff rolling off the highest ends of the bicycle industry, and I throw you a question about a twenty dollars Craigslist bike, and you answer the hell out of it, yeah. which I loved. You I, know, I mean, thank I, you. I was a bike mechanic at my first bike mechanic job in 99 um, in Columbia, Missouri, where I grew up and have been in and out of the bike industry ever since. So, I mean, these are things that like I've done and you, and you don't just become a race mechanic. Like you kind of have to have some, some pretty serious bike knowledge before you get to that point. But yeah. Is there any like story or person that you've met like that just kind of sticks out in your mind since you went down this road? Is there like a particular situation or a problem that came up that you were able to help somebody with or something? Yeah, I mean any I'm definitely not a bike mechanic anymore. Like building tools is very much a full-time affair for for me and, and the other two guys that work with us on a regular basis. And so a lot of a lot of the thing that we kind of have or need help with from our customers or friends is uh, is just identifying the problems. You know, what are you struggling with? What do you need tooling for? And it's like we don't necessarily need them to come up with the tool idea. You know, but it's since I'm not working on bikes anymore, it's like I kind of need that feedback. And yesterday I got wrapped up into a 40-minute conversation with a couple of bike fitters that really wanted a special like widget to, to measure something specific on the bike and we kind of batted it around a couple different ideas and and whatnot and it was like oh well what about this and what about that and it's like and then finally we came up with this idea that was really simple and it's like nope that will work and that's something that like I can knock out in a couple of hours I can make a, a functional prototype for that and you know and we can see how well it works in reality but yeah I mean we get everybody uses tools different everybody's got different hands uh, you know some people have uh, hand limitations whether it's grip strength or they're missing some fingers or you know whatever the case is left-handed versus right handed so to just put things in there and kind of take everybody's feedback as uh as something that's valuable and to like give them an ear to like oh well, what about this or what about that and and sometimes we we have to make decisions to to go to the masses or to find like a baseline of ergonomics or whatnot and, and sometimes it's as a relatively small company sometimes we can modify tools for people relatively easy we make handles a little longer because they don't have a lot of grip strength or we can cut them down because they want to do some tiny toolbox or stuff like like that that stuff's pretty easy for us I mean we we do all the fabrication of the tools in-house and all the handles and whatnot are all processed in, in our shop and bend so it's pretty straightforward so we're usually pretty open to that stuff sometimes it's like eh, somebody wants us to make a tool that to cut a corner and it's like nope I firmly believe that this is the way that this needs to be done and so does the manufacturer and I, I understand what you're doing and I understand why you want that, but I have a bit of a problem making it. And it maybe it's not just for that person, but it's like then somebody else will see it and then it's like, eh, I, I don't, if I make you one, I need to be prepared to make like a hundred of these. And I'm, we're going to put them into the hands of people that may or may not use them appropriately. So that's kind of one of the things that we do um, kind of with tool design and our support of the Pro Bike Mechanics Association, the PBMA, to kind of raise the professionalism and the and the precision of our industry and kind of give some validity to, to the craftsmen and the and the technicians that are, you know, working on these bikes, whether they're your $20 Gary Fisher or your $12,000, you know, uh, race bike. Do you want to say anything about riding? Do you ever find a chance to ride anywhere? I, I fell off my bike just a couple weeks ago. The NAR shredded me. Um, yeah, definitely. I always started as a mountain biker. Spent a lot of time on the road. All my race mechanic experiences, with a couple of exceptions, has been road-minded. But yeah, I mean, we live in Bend. There's tons of single track around there. Uh, our paved roads are kind of mediocre in surface, so not the most fun thing to do. But um, yeah, uh, I've got a 10-and-a-half-year-old son, so we definitely get out as a, as a family once in a while and go hit the pump track or that. But like doing the big multi-day trip, 
trips or whatever to spend an entire Saturday, both as a business owner and, and a dad um, and a husband aren't quite in my cards. But yeah, still love to geek out on bikes. I tend to get a new uh, squishy bike about every year and a half or so. And part of it is to kind of get me out of my bubble of just riding like mundane steel bikes that, that I've either built or have gotten from other, other builders. And you know, it's like we make tools for modern bikes. We need to have things to test them. Um, and like, what are, what are the things around the bottom bracket that might impact a, a press fit bearing tool or a, an extractor or whatever the situation is. So yeah, definitely still ride bikes, not as much as I would like, which I think most people that honestly work in the industry would say, but yeah, get out there a bit. So as a kid who um, grew up to see all the factories closed down around him uh, in New England, you think, and my, I mean, my hope is, and a lot of our hopes is, is that we'll come back with this micro-manufacturing where lots of little companies instead of the big giant companies. Is that a realistic perspective to have? Man, that's a tough one. Um, we do domestically manufacture um, about 98% of what we put our name on. There's a few components that aren't, um, you know, that are like the the quarter inch drive bits that are in our multi-tool. It's like, it doesn't really make sense for us to make those on our own. And they're not made in the US, but we do get them from the Germans. Um, and so it's like, they're still made in a first world country. They're very high quality. And it's something that we like to, you know, we're, are comfortable integrating into our packaging um, or into our, our products. We definitely have a, a passion for domestic manufacturing, whether it's in America or it's in another country. It just cuts down on a lot of waste to shipping things around the world. And it's, but on the flip side, it's really helped us. Like our international customer base is not insignificant. And so it's nice to be able for us to ship our things out outside of our borders. But yeah. Is there anything funny in particular? Somebody... There's nothing funny about tool making. Yeah, there is. <laughs> um, uh, it's all serious and it's all precision um, I mean just the, the memories that I've got of like hanging out with customers at events or uh, or shows and whatnot are kind of I don't, know, I don't know if you would call them funny but it's definitely like the fun time and like the memorable part about being the uh, the tool that makes the tools and being that guy that kind of has you know everybody knows um, or at least knows of me and it's like to sit down and have a beer with those customers is, uh, or friends is always great one of them came to dinner with us last night and uh, you know he's another race mechanic guy that, that I've known for quite a while and it's a bit of a legend and, and uh, you know it was fun to sit down and, and have a chuckle with him but yeah so yeah uh, a lot of people ask where did the name Abby come from it's Abby with an E so it's the monks not the girls but yeah as uh, the last bike shop job that I had the boss had always had this uh, dream of building bicycle frames and so I coming from the welding background I had a frame jig he had a TIG machine we had a set of uh, an oxyacetylene bottles and torches and and he had kind of this dilapidated um, outbuilding on his property and, and so we we built some bike frames together um, and we wanted a name and that's the name that we ultimately came up with. I've been a home brewer for about as long as I've been able uh, legal to drink but um, have always kind of enjoyed making beer at home and kind of beer beer culture from around the world. It's one of my favorite things to do when I travel is to go try different uh, craft beers or, or even like traveling around Europe when there's just kind of your your regular standard pilsners. Yeah and Alan was the, the friend of mine and, and my boss and he loved everything Belgian and so we had kind of like thrown out some other beer, brewing related things, but there's not too many unique names in brewing, like the, the yeast strains and the hops and the and the, the malts are, are commonly named after other things, you know, and so people wouldn't necessarily get the correlation between like, oh, we're going to name it Cascade Bicycles, and it's like, well, that's the mountain range in Oregon, but it's also a hop variety that's super common, you know, and it's like, just the disconnect was, was too big, and so we had, had come up with a couple of things, and and had like sat on them and then we would they would wane pretty quickly and then Abby I think I don't remember which one of us threw it out but it was like instantly it was like that's the one so we built maybe three or four bikes together and then the economy tanked and I wound up buying the, the welder from him the bike shop unfortunately went out of business and then uh, I kind of putzed around for a couple of years doing um, a lot of freelance race support and doing some mobile repair making house calls around Bend and 
and um, doing some corporate work and for bike related and like accounts and and then when I started making tools it was like we just we rolled the name into that business it's like we already had a logo that I was pretty pretty keen on and I definitely liked the name and so that's, that's where it all came from People want to find out more? Yeah, so we are abbeybiketools.com or at abbeybiketools on Facebook and the Instagram. So Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate you coming over to check out the episode I put over each month, but you might be wondering what else is out there. So I also like to tell you guys about some of the other bicycle podcasts that are out there. One is the Sprocket podcast from Portland. Guthrie contacted me and we have been chatting a little bit back and forth. Their mission is to cover bicycles, trains, public transit, and the simple life. And being out of Portland, you know they know about bicycles. So go check them out sometime. It's the Sprocket podcast. Meanwhile, back here at the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast, I also wanted to give a big thank you to Clinton2233, Book Island, Sullivan Joseph, P. Turner66PT, and PBGA25D9BR for following me on Podbean. Thanks a lot. I don't know, but I've been told that people who follow on iTunes or subscribe on Podbean, they have less flats. I don't know how that could be possible, but it must be true. So hit like, follow, share on social media. It'll be greatly appreciated. And if you happen to get less flats because of it, even better. Back to the show. I like rescuing bikes, and I like rescuing stories. Sometimes I find the bikes in the weirdest places, like rivers and scrap piles. And sometimes I find the stories in really unexpected places, like people who you just happen to ask, you got any good bike stories? And that's where the magical transformation happens. The person that you're talking to all of a sudden either looks totally blank and says, no, I got nothing, or they look at you and they say, oh my God, do I got bicycle stories for you? And they light up and become animated and a smile creeps over their face. And you know that you're getting ready to hear a really cool story. Well, that's what happened with Greg. Greg Han came to my swap meet and we talked a little bit. I bought some stuff off of him and he forgot something at the swap meet. So he came to pick it up like the next week and I happened to ask him the magic question. Do you have any bicycle stories? And he started telling me this amazing story that involved him and Eddie Merckx. Now, for those of you who don't know, because we all have to start somewhere, Eddie Merckx is the equivalent in cycling of Muhammad Ali or Michael Jordan. He is considered by some to be like the greatest cyclist of all time. Eddie Merckx of Holland leads the pack, followed by countryman Jan Jansen, Raymond Says of Spain, and Gianni Motta of Italy. Britain's Bob Addy stayed with the leader. His nickname was The Cannibal. He won, I think, four Tour de France's and all the other major races, and he was a force to be reckoned with. And as so many other cyclists who are successful in racing do, he went to start his own bicycle brand with his name, Merck's Bicycles. So Michael Jordan had Nike Air Jordans and Eddie Merckx has Merckx bicycles. He was an amazing champion, but in the business world, Greg thought he was getting taken advantage of by the distributors and all the other places where he would have to buy the parts from to go onto his bicycles. So Greg took a meeting, I think he snuck in, but he took a meeting with Eddie Merckx and his wife and told them about how he could help them to do better in business. And then, well, I'll just let the man tell you himself. Here he is. Yes, my name is Gregory Hahn, cyclist extraordinaire. <laughs> the best cycling story you got. Well, there are so many, but I'll tell you the first day I met Eddie Merckx. I had been to the Tour de France first in 1973 when Merckx didn't ride, and then in 74 when he cleaned up, and of course he won in Montreal at the World Championships as well. But the prologue in, Ch in Chalois, Belgium, July 1975, Eddie lost the prologue to Francesco Moser by two seconds, and he was quite angry. And I saw him charging over the cobblestones in Chalois on the way to his hotel. I ambled up to him on my bike and I said, Un autograph, s'il vous plaît. And he turned to me in English, stuck out his big hand and said, 
Sorry, no time. <laughs> I thought that might be the last time I ever got to see Eddie Merckx up close, which, of course, things happened very differently in my favor. I turned the corner, though, and there was Francesco Moser standing in the doorway of his hotel, resplendent in the Mayo Jun, the yellow jersey. We just recorded the first time that you met Eddie Merckx, and then you have been telling me more about how you got to work with him, and you eventually got to his factory, and you sat him down, and you were trying to negotiate the deal for American distribution with him. Tell us how that went. Well, for one thing, Merckx and company was being raped by everybody in the cycling trade, for tubing, for grupos, for everything, you know, to brazing material, paint, everything. They were paying too much because they didn't know the game. So I sat down with Eddie and his wife and I said, next week we'll go to the Milan show. Let me negotiate some numbers for you. So first stop was the Columbus booth. And I know Antonio Colombo very well. We go there. And those days, of course, we all went to the trade shows in suits and ties. We sit down and I said to Colombo, you know, Mr. Merck said, oh, Eddie, how are you? Colombo says. I said, listen, Tony, baby, I have an invoice here that I think there's a grave error in the arithmetic. I pass it over to him, he passes it back to me, he goes, oh, that's our best discount. I said, bull <laughs> I know Bianchi pays 20% less. Actually, I didn't know what Bianchi paid. I was bluffing, right? And Eddie's looking at me, he's turning red. And so I said to Colombo, sorry, we can't do business. Eddie, let's go to Reynolds. Antonio Colombo grabbed us both by the neckties and yanked us back down to the seats. He goes, tell me what price you want to pay. And that's how I got all the prices for all the material to make the Eddie Merckx bikes down to rock bottom, the best in the industry. Down the home stretch, and the favorite Eddie Merckx wins by only half a wheel. Merckx becomes world champ and a big wheel on the circuit. They didn't know what everybody else paid for things because when Eddie was a sponsored rider, he never paid for anything since he was a junior. He was always sponsored by some bicycle manufacturer, some component manufacturer, primarily Campagnolo. But, you know, he never so much as bought a pair of socks. Everything was given to him. So when he had to go shopping for material for the factory to build bicycles, you know, he didn't really know what to pay for anything. Even the paint and the brazing material, the Castellin he used for the lugs, they were probably paying too much for everything. And I made him sit down, get a hold of the paint supplier, which was Seekins, and negotiate a better price there. And also the retardant they were using in the paint wasn't making the, the frames as vibrant as they should be. And the packaging for the boxes for the United States, we had to have cartons for, to ship frame sets that were UPS sized. You know, these are factors they don't think of when they're just selling bikes out the door in Belgium and Holland and, you know, nearby them. But when you've got to export worldwide, you have to be very, very competitive, but you have to be very efficient and you have to be top quality. Well, he, he didn't know what any price was the best price in reality because he had never purchased anything in the past. And when people came to sell them, they just said, oh, Eddie, you know, we'll send you material and, and you know, we'll send you the bill later, Eddie. You know, he, he never looked at an invoice until it was too late most of the time. Mrs. Merckx was downtown Brussels and she said to Eddie during this discussion that she saw Clement tubulars for sale in a retail store for less money to the public than they paid for them at their factory which was, I mean, they were really getting taken advantage of by whoever they bought the Clement from. Probably not direct from the factory, probably from some agent in Belgium. Because in those days, agents used to make a lot of money on these things. Now everything is computerized. In those days, everything was handwritten invoices and every little thing was negotiated. But today, there's no hiding anything. Everybody knows the price of everything. We went to all the manufacturers, for instance, Cinelli for bars and stems, the same thing with Triple T. Mavic for rims, Nisi for rims, DT for spokes, even the guy that makes the lugs and bracket shells, Microfusioni Italiana is the name of the place, the casting house in Italy, and of course Campagnolo, and Campagnolo was the best one because when I walked in there, I shook hands with Valentino, of course Eddie and Valentino know each other well, and I said, Valentino, I got bad news for you, he goes, what's that? I said, well, Shimano's been knocking on the door there with us yesterday in Belgium. It looks like they want to sponsor all the Eddie Merckx teams, in which there were three or four at the time. He goes, what? <laughs> I said, then again, if you can bring the price of that Grupo, those Grupos down, I said, I want at least 60% off the Listino. The Listino means the list price that you know manufacturers pay for things. And he cringed, but he came around and gave us the price. He did not want to see Shimano on Eddie Merckx bikes. This is 1983 when Shimano was not so powerful, but you know, very aggressive in the market. At the end of the day, I see Eddie, it's like six o'clock, the show is breaking up. And he goes, Greg, Greg, wait till you see the last thing I bought here. I said, uh-oh, Eddie, what you, he goes, it's all right. I know I got the best price. And what it was, was a bath 
to dip the frames into in zinc phosphate to rust proof for the frames inside and out, which not very many custom frame manufacturers did. But he was insistent on making frames that would last a lifetime. That was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Oh, there'll be many more. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. If you've been with the show a long time, you know I've tried really hard to improve the sound quality since the first episode. Even so, sometimes external noises get in the way. So for this next segment, please know I tried my very best to maximize and optimize the sound quality. And once you get past the first couple of seconds, you'll forget all about that and just hear the story. I gotta get new roommates. Imagine getting a chance to go to your personal Shangri-La or Mecca, a pilgrimage, but you only have a limited amount of time to do what you wanted to do there. Well, that's what happened to Nathan, AKA a cyclist in a strange land. He got a chance to go to Copenhagen. From the outside, the people in Denmark seem to have nailed it in terms of living with bicycles. It's pretty idyllic. You don't have to wear special clothes. You're much less likely to die on a bicycle there than in the United States. And there's plenty of infrastructure for you to get around by bike. You can live your life just with a bicycle. So let's follow along with him vicariously as he tells the story of his first trip to Copenhagen. This is Nathan Durkis from Minneapolis, Minnesota and a cyclist in a strange land.com. My story is titled, My First Bike Ride in Copenhagen. By objective measures, the hotel's rental bike was nothing special. It only had three gears, weighed 40 pounds, and the tires needed air. There were hints of oxidation on the fork and spokes, and the handlebars and the original branding had been scraped off and replaced with the words, Copenhagen Island. In any other city, I would have turned around and demanded that their concierge provide me a full refund for the bike rental. But this city made everything different. In Copenhagen, these were the qualities that I was looking for in a rental bike. Ironically, when my friends and I walked by those bikes the night before, they laughed at them. They thought the bike's basket on the front and the panniers on the back made them girls' bikes. They just couldn't see that they were looking at gems. The simple characteristics of the rental bike made them wonderfully anonymous in the crowd city and cargo bikes that filled the streets of Denmark's capital. Copenhagen is the mecca of cycling. Their entire transportation infrastructure is built around raised platforms that serve as bike lanes. These fit perfectly with the Danish megalopolis's flat terrain and its hardy residents' love of the outdoors, and a magnet for young talent and innovators across Europe. How could I help not being drawn to this city? We've all read the magazine articles and blog posts. Every city that's building up its cycling infrastructure has their eyes on becoming the next Copenhagen. In my past, when I've helped cycling advocacy, it seems like every pro-cycling politician had visited Copenhagen for research and peppered their speeches with references to the cycling haven. And even though these references are part of tactics pulled straight from Political Science 101, I always bought them hook, line, and sinker. After all, I dream of moving from my suburban home into a more bike-friendly region of the Twin Cities, places like Uptown or Downtown Minneapolis. I've always wanted to purchase a high-end city bike with Gates Carbon Drive and roam those urban bike lanes on my way to work, to museums, 
and to the farmer's market to pick up urban-grown produce. If politicians want to get reelected by making their city more like Copenhagen, without the high taxes, of course, I'm all for it. In a sense, Copenhagen's my Avalon. It represents that idealized lifestyle that I yearn for, a life centered around bicycles, fitness, and clean living. I've spent so much time in meditative suffering along the Midwest's foothills, trying to improve my body and soul, trying to change myself from a sedentary member of Generation Y into a man with direction and purpose. A surprise opportunity to visit Copenhagen for a few days was something I couldn't pass up. I couldn't wait to get a glimpse of my dream. Unfortunately, it wasn't until my last morning in Copenhagen that I had an opportunity to mount a rental bike and explore Copenhagen the way it was meant to be explored. It was 8 o'clock on a Friday morning when I left the hotel for my first bike ride through Copenhagen. With rush hour still in full swing, the city was clogged with thousands of commuters on lopsided aluminum and steel frames. The bike lanes that seemed so wide and spacious the night before began to shrink in the chaos as riders jockeyed for a position on their way to work. I hesitantly merged with the masses flowing through H.C. Anderson's Boulevard. Suddenly, I felt insignificant, a minnow among the 20,000 cyclists filling the city's main commuter artery. The neutral-colored clothing and furrowed Scandinavian brow of the man next to me made me doubt that I belonged on the path. I began to remember my friends telling me that I might not have the skills to cut it on Copenhagen's mean streets. Thankfully, though, after a few blocks, fog of fear began to lift. I was surprised and relieved to see how sensible and efficient the traffic patterns were. None of the chaotic anarchy that I had expected. The people were serious while still being courteous. In fact, for the first time during that trip, I was finally beginning to think I was with my people, real cyclists, people who I understood and people who understood me. Finally at peace, I silently glided over the clean roads. The cool sea air blew me through the city, past historic Viking docks next to schoolyards where happy children played while their parents and teachers looked on, past countless bike shops selling niche brands I'd never heard of, moving alongside young men in suits and ladies in flower dresses on their way to start their day. I couldn't help but grin when I spotted the facade of a building painted with a large, cartoonish image of two cyclists racing through the countryside. Although my ride would have to end soon, I was determined to find one more memory from this pilgrimage. I turned my bike down a pine-lined path leading to a meticulously manicured cemetery. Unlike the vacant fields used as cemeteries in the United States, this Danish cemetery was filled with university students studying their assignments widowers mourning their loved ones, and retired couples walking their small dogs. It was a community garden as much as it was a cemetery. It had an unfamiliar mix of youthful joy and somber silence. On my bike, I was lost somewhere in between that mix of emotions. Later that day, in Copenhagen's airport, waiting to return home, my tax friends bemoaned my happy mood. Their late night of washing Top Gear and raiding the minibar had left them groggy and soured on the day. I found myself in a dichotomy. While I had been discovering a new world and experiencing a level of enlightenment known only to us two-wheeled journeymen, my friends' presuppositions and aversion to adventure kept them from experiencing the world available to them beyond what was offered in their living rooms on a Saturday night. I was stuck in thought, wondering when in my life I'd chosen a similar state of stagnation and familiarity over risk and adventure. I began to remember all the times that I decided to sit on my couch instead of exploring my potential and making my dreams a reality. I'm sorry to admit that even my bike ride through Copenhagen nearly didn't happen because of my fear's powerful distrust for the new. 
Perhaps I'll return to Copenhagen again for a second bike ride. I went to see Tivoli in the summertime, the Little Mermaid on the coast, and the Danish royal guards manning their posts. I want to get lost again in the city's winding streets and admire those distinctive yellow buildings while drinking cappuccino next to one of the many canals. Yet, it may be appropriate to never ride those elevated paths again. Maybe this ride was a glimpse into a world and a life that I don't quite have and never will. Or maybe it was the inspiration for the life I'll create for myself and my family here in Minneapolis, the Copenhagen of America. And you can read more from Nathan at his blog, A Cyclist in a Strange Land, at www.acyclistinastrangeland.com. Thanks for coming along on the ride. Another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. I want to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for letting me use their music for the opening and closing theme song. You can check them out at mobjackmusic.com. I want to thank Jason, Gregory, and Nathan for helping with this episode and sharing their stories. I want to thank the people who've liked, followed, and downloaded and shared to my amazement in all 50 states and over 50 countries. Thank you very much. And as for you, Oprah, I know you're just organizing your thoughts, getting ready to contact me, as are the people in Greenland. Just one download, Greenland, please. If you have any ideas for the show or would like to contact me, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. Trademark, copyrights, intellectual property, all that stuff are asserted and reserved. If you'd like stickers from the show, please just contact me and I'd be happy to send you some. Thanks to all the shops and cafes around the world who have helped me to distribute those stickers. So I guess that about wraps it up. I can't think of anything else we need to talk about on this episode. Wait, 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 wait. We still need to do the ABC quick check. A is for air. B is for break. C is for chain line. And quick is for quick releases and a quick check on your bike or anything with wheels before you take off. You never know what might come undone in your bike in between rides, so make sure to check each time and do your ABC quick check. Well, thanks for that reminder, Taryn, and thank you for coming along for the ride. Till next time, keep it wheel.